Welcome to the Unplugged Podcast with Debo Zarco, session number three. Hello, and welcome to the Unplugged Podcast, where we unplug from status quo and shift the paradigm from head to heart by co-creating a more passionate, compassionate, loving, and interconnected world. And I'm your status quo crushing host, Debo Zarco, and you can find me at my cyber home at debozarko.com. That's D-E-B-O-Z-A-R-K-O.com or on Facebook at deb.ozarko. Now today, I have the great honor of presenting a really fun and inspiring interview with one of my all-time favorite people on the planet. Today, we get to chat with the co-founder and president of the Institute for Humane Education, the feisty, funny, and absolutely fabulous Zoe Weil. Now, Zoe is a pioneer and a passionate crusader in the humane education movement. And for those of you who don't know about the humane education movement, it's actually a beautiful way of educating, which works to create a humane, peaceful, healthy, and just world for all people, all animals, and the environment through education. Zoe created the Institute for Humane Education's MED, MA, and Graduate Certificate programs, as well as IHE's acclaimed Humane Education and MOGO workshops and online courses. And MOGO stands for Most Good. She's a six-time author with inspiring books, including the Nautilus Silver Medal winner, Most Good, Least Harm, A Simple Principle for a Better World and Meaningful Life. She's also written many articles on humane education and humane living and has been interviewed by numerous radio and television stations and media outlets such as Forbes.com. Zoe is a tireless speaker at universities, at conferences, at schools and communities across North America, and she's also an inspiring TEDx speaker. Her 2010 TEDx talk, The World Becomes What You Teach, became one of the 50 top rated of more than 12,000 TEDx talks that year. And since then, she's given three more absolutely incredible TEDx talks. And if that's not enough, in 2012, Zoe premiered her one-woman show, My Ongoing Problems with Kindness, Confessions of a Mogo Girl, and now brings humane issues to communities through entertainment. And I can vouch for the fact that this woman is entertaining. And with that, I'm just going to sidestep for a moment and say that this tiny woman is an absolute ball of fire and passion. I had the pleasure of first meeting Zoe in 1999 for one of her weekend workshops. And to say that it was transformative is an understatement. Her passion, compassion, and wicked sense of humor were contagious, and her gentle yet persuasive approach to issues that I'd never thoroughly considered opened both my heart and my mind. For me, 1999 was a very significant year because it was my first year as a vegan after 24 years prior to that as a rather lazy vegetarian. And I confess I actually had a lot of anger when I finally woke up to the truth of our very cruel and very broken cultural belief system around animals, the environment, and one another. And what I learned in that one transformative weekend was how to think more critically, love more deeply, and live as an example rather than someone who just angrily spewed accusations at those still asleep at the wheel. Because... You know, truthfully, I was once there too. And I returned for another epic weekend with Zoe again in 2000, and yet again, this time in Toronto, and I think it was around 2002 for that same workshop. Both times I attended with my partner, but each time I got something new out of it. This is how powerfully transformative Zoe's work is. 
Now, Zoe also tells me that she's not technologically savvy, but I beg to differ. If you have the privilege of following her on Facebook, you'll be continually inspired by her incredible photography and really fun video clips. And they're always highlighting the beauty and the magic of nature. Zoe is a true solutionary. She lives in complete alignment with her core values and does so with joy and with hope. And I feel truly honored to have her in my life and to be able to call her friend. So get ready to rock it, because Zoe Wiles in the house. Hello, Zoe. Hello, Deb. So, so great to have you here. I'm so excited because we haven't chatted in a while. So this is really exciting for me, and it's really exciting to be able to introduce you to all the listeners on this show as well. Well, thank you. It's great to talk to you again. And you and I go back a long way. As a matter of fact, I remember the first time that I met you was in 1999. And that was when you were the co-founder of what was then the Center for Compassionate Living. And there's been a huge evolution since then. And you're now the author of, what is it, six books now? It is. And countless articles on humane education and compassionate living and you've given inspirational TED Talks, and you continue to speak regularly around the North America and the globe, and you've got your own one-woman show. You're just a, you're a ball of fire. Well, thanks. It's been fun. One thing I don't even know about is your journey to the work that you did today, and I'd really love if you could, if you could step back in time and you could chat about the Zoe Weil evolution how you got to the work that, you, um, that you're doing today, and what was your life like before your, your purpose and your calling was revealed to you? Uh, well, I would say it was a bit of a dilettante uh, for a while. I went to college pre-med, uh, quickly abandoned that. I became an English major, got my master's in English, and then discovered that you know, being a professor of English literature might mean that there were two job openings somewhere in the United States. And and I didn't like those odds of getting a job I wanted. So I went to law school. That lasted all of a couple months um, before I realized that was the wrong profession for me. And I had various jobs, various volunteer work. I ended up going to divinity school to study comparative world religions, which was a real interest of mine. And again, thinking about that whole college professor uh, approach um, to, to my future. And it was during graduate school when I was looking for a summer job in Philadelphia where my then boyfriend, now husband, was living because he was in graduate school. And I found this program which offered week-long courses to middle school students. And I called the director and I pitched five courses and she said yes to all of them. And um, one of them was on environmental issues. One of them was on uh, animal issues. And then there were a few others. Two of them didn't run because the students weren't that interested in learning how to watch television critically or about world religions. However, the animal issues course and the environmental issues course and a creative writing course did run. And what was fascinating was that the animal issues course was the second most popular of the 60 courses that were offered that summer. And people are often curious what was more popular than animal issues. So I'll tell you, it was robotics, even back in 1987. So uh, I taught that course. It was just a week, and the kids were 12 and 13-year-olds, and I watched in amazement as these kids were transformed over the course of a week, in one case overnight. So on Wednesday, I talked about product testing on animals in which everything from soaps and oven cleaners and personal care products are dripped into the eyes of conscious rabbits and smeared onto the abraded skin of animals and force-fed to them in quantities that kill. And he was disturbed by this, and he went home and he made his own homemade leaflets. Now, as people are listening to that, they're probably thinking that he typed up a pamphlet um, or leaflet on his computer and printed it out. This was in 1987. He made his own homemade leaflets by handwriting each one. And he came back into class the next day with a handful of them, maybe about 20 of them, and he asked if he could hand them out. 
And I thought he wanted to just hand them out to his classmates, but he actually wanted to hand them out on the street. And so while the rest of us were having lunch, he was standing on a Philadelphia street corner handing out his homemade leaflets. You know, he'd become a change maker overnight. And so that was the summer that I found my life's work as a humane educator, somebody who teaches about the interconnected issues of human rights and environmental preservation and animal protection in order to help people of all ages become solutionaries, become change makers, become problem solvers for a more just and humane and sustainable world. And so discovering that that was my life's work didn't make the path simple because at the time there really weren't many opportunities for humane educators and I was hired by a humane society uh, when I was out of graduate school and I worked there for uh, a year and it was great except that it was frustrating that the humane society wanted me to focus specifically on issues related to dogs and cats and I wanted to talk about issues related to all animals, all people, and the environment which sustains us all. So I ended up being hired by another animal organization a year later, and they let me start an educational program in which I included all animal and environmental issues and and some human rights issues uh, integrated into that. And I began going into schools and teaching about these issues. I was reaching about 10,000 kids a year through this program. And Well, it sounds like a wow in a way, except to me it was just a drop in the bucket. I wanted to see all young people exposed to these ideas, all young people encouraged to be change makers and to use their talents and their gifts with their big hearts and their great minds to make a difference in the world. And so in 1996, I co-founded the what was then the Center for Compassionate Living and which is now the Institute for Humane Education, primarily to train other people to be humane educators so that there would be many more of us, so that all teachers could become humane educators, so humane education could infuse every institution of learning, um, whether traditional classroom or college or alternative or in a, in every home by parents who are their children's first humane educators. And so that's how I got started on this path. But it really was circuitous. What's great is that now, if somebody wants to go on this path, we have a really nice path for them to take. We have graduate programs, online courses, free downloadable resources, all these ways in which somebody who might be thinking what I was thinking 25 years ago, um, but now there's training programs and materials and resources so that they can just do it. So it sounds like the path started out as an intellectual path. And do you feel like that um, that fellow who who created his own pamphlets and was handing them out was the defining moment that really uh, connected you to to your calling? Do you feel like that was the the critical moment that made you realize, yes, this is it for me? Well, I think it was the whole class. I mean, it, it was a week in which I, I had already, in some sense, been a humane educator. Um, prior to going to graduate school, I was a teacher naturalist at a nature center, and I loved teaching about um, nature and animals and the environment. I, I really loved it. Um, again, though, I couldn't see how it could morph into a career. Um, I mean, I could have stayed as a teacher naturalist at a nature center forever, but I wanted to have this bigger impact. And when I watched these kids, when I designed my, my own curriculum for a week, and I watched these kids in general become really passionate and really good critical thinkers, and wanted to make personal changes. What ended up happening was that some of them started a Philadelphia area-wide school or student group. And because these kids were all from different schools, the student group was comprised of kids from all these different schools. And we met in my living room for a while because there wasn't enough, there, there wasn't a critical mass at any one school. And these kids went on to win awards for their work. And that's when it it just started to 
I started to realize this could be one's life's work, um, that, that this really could make a difference. So it wasn't a eureka moment. It wasn't a light bulb moment where, um, you know, just that, that one boy making those leaflets made me realize this was my life's work. It was that whole week and then what unfolded from that week and realizing I had the capacity to create something new. And, you know, like many many people, often we think of our options as, you know, what's available to us uh, from the outside world. So, you know, I grew up thinking, oh, I'm going to be a professional of some sort, which is why I went to college pre-med and then went to law school. And I didn't really realize that I had the agency to create something new. Now, I think that's different today. I think young people are much more aware of their capacity to create things because they live in that kind of world. You know, they can create a YouTube video that goes viral, right? So um, I think that it's a very exciting, collaborative, communicative, creative time in, um, in human history. And so I think that what, what took me a while for other people might come a little bit faster because... I think people, more and more people can perceive themselves as the agents of creativity and something new. Well, how do you feel like one of the things that I've, I've, when I first met you, your passion is just, it's so beautiful and it's so contagious and it was really truly life altering for me and everything that I learned when I was at your workshops all those years ago, I have incorporated into my own life every single day. Every single decision that I make is is a critical decision, and I live my life so much more consciously as a result of just your weekend workshops at that time. So what I'm wondering is, how has your, you've been doing this for so long now, how has your work evolved over the years? Has it been embraced more fully by culture? Um, have you had to has it had to change with the cultural changes? I'm just curious to know the evolution. Great question. Well, you know, when I first started doing this work and started to go into schools, the educational climate was very different than it, it is now. I thought that we'd be further along in terms of humane education being integrated into schools than we are. Now, you're in Canada and I'm in the U.S., and in Canada, it actually is further along. But in the U.S., because of No Child Left Behind and the multiple-choice standardized bubble tests that kids are taking constantly and uh, reduced funding in schools so that things that are more creative are getting cut from the curriculum and there's more focus on teaching to these standardized tests, that's meant that there is less room for these um, these more creative and collaborative uh, approaches to education that would help young people become solutionaries. And that is frustrating to me. Now, there's a real backlash now because people are very frustrated that that the whole idea of No Child Left Behind, which was very well-meaning, you know, the idea was to ensure that every child would graduate verbally and mathematically literate. And that's really important. And I don't want to minimize that at all. The problem has been in the execution of, of, of achieving that goal. And what we discover as educators who are, you know, more focused on a purpose of schooling being to graduate solutionaries, to give young people the critical and creative thinking skills and collaborative abilities to solve problems is that you need verbal, mathematical, and scientific literacy to succeed at those things. And if you teach them those foundational skills in the service of something that's really meaningful and relevant, that they actually learn it better and they're more interested and it's a win-win all around. And I think that we are seeing that happening now. We're seeing a lot more experimentation as we try to solve the challenge of, of youth not having the verbal and mathematical skills that they need, um, but also knowing that we're not giving them the skills for the 21st century. I mean, these kids are going to graduate. They're going to have multiple jobs. They're not going to be like, you know, our parents who 
most of them got a job and stayed with that job till they retired. And these kids are going to have 10 jobs by the time they're 30 years old. And the world is changing so rapidly. And the information that we might deem important, important enough to put on a multiple choice bubble test is actually a click away on a computer that sits in their pocket. And that that's actually less important than them being able to be a critical thinker and a problem solver for a world that has potential catastrophes that are looming around them. And I, I'm, I am a very hopeful person, so I don't want um, people listening to hear the whole doomsday scenario, which many uh, activists um, you know, share, and it's a big downer, and sometimes people just turn off when they hear it. And I'm actually very optimistic, as I said, very hopeful. So I, I, I want to say that we can't minimize these looming and potential catastrophes. I mean, global climate change is a potential catastrophe for all species on this planet, including our own. We are losing so many species right now. We may lose half of all species on Earth by the end of this century. We have a growing population of over 7 billion people, each of whom needs access to adequate food and clean water and economic opportunity and a home and energy, and 1 billion of whom right now don't even have access to adequate food and clean water. Not to mention that we are killing approximately a trillion, and that's with a T, a trillion animals every year around the world. That's including sea animals who are comprised the vast majority of that trillion. So there's these big problems out there. Now, while those problems loom, we talk about education, at least in the United States, as having the grand purpose of being able to compete in the global economy. Now, I personally have no problem with our students being able to compete in the global economy, but it shouldn't be the purpose of education. To me, the purpose of education should be to ensure that all students have the knowledge and the skills and the motivation to be conscientious choice makers and engaged change makers for a peaceful and just and sustainable world for all people, all species, and for the earth which sustains us all. I think that should be the very purpose of education. Now, the exciting part is that because all of our students in their pockets, and, and I'm even talking about sometimes students who are otherwise disenfranchised in lots of ways living in, in very poor countries, many of them will also have access to computers, whether it's in their pocket or it's just a computer for you know the village. The fact is that we can communicate instantaneously with people across every border to work together to solve our problems. And so what our kids really need is they really need the skills to be able to acquire good information, to be able to tell good information from bad. We know what's on the Internet. I mean, you know, every silly ideas on the internet, every conspiracy theory is on the internet, and people can believe all sorts of things. Our students need to be critical thinkers above all else so that they have the skills to ascertain what is actually accurate and true and that they can actually use their great skills to solve problems. That's what education needs to be for. That's what humane education does. And I, ha I think I have strayed so far from your original question, I don't even know what it was. <laughs> it's called flow. You're going with the flow. And that's, okay. that, <laughs> that's what this is all about. But I thought it was, it's interesting that you're talking about uh, the power of communication because it's, I see it as a double-edged sword. And I think you've kind of indirectly brought that up as well, because we have the capacity to, uh, to, to, to chat at the speed of light with somebody across the globe, and we can become solutionaries. But at the same time, most people, what I'm seeing is that they're using this technological advancement as nothing but a distraction that takes them further and further away from their heart space, from that compassion that we inherently all have. I don't know, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think you're right, and I think it's true with almost everything in the world. I mean, almost everything has its 
you know, shadow side. And, um, and, and you're absolutely right that, you know, people, people can waste their whole lives, you know, um, on social media and, you know, all just being connected to their screens and not even connecting to other people, let alone the natural world in ways that are meaningful and would would actually ignite their compassion and ignite their desire to protect this natural world. I mean, if you're just sitting at your computer, um, your computer, which is actually filled with all sorts of toxic chemicals, mined in unsustainable ways, but probably produced, uh, you know, through sweatshop labor in some other country. I mean, there are, um, there are downsides to all of it. But with that said, you know, Margaret Mead once said that there's no doubt that a small group of committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it is the only thing that ever has. And this ability to communicate and connect is the greatest tool we have ever had for working together to solve our problems, for building bridges, for eliminating um, xenophobia and hatred and prejudice, because you... You can have kids, and this is happening everywhere. Kids are communicating with other kids across the globe all the time. And they are working together to share their lives and learn from each other. I mean, it takes pen pal to a whole new level when you have, you know, kids in Ottawa uh, talking to kids in Nigeria and learning from each other and working together to solve problems. And it's so unbelievably exciting to me. And one of the things that um, we're launching at the Institute for Humane Education is solutionary teams. So, you know, I know that in Canada, you don't have debate teams to the same degree that we have them in the United States. But in every high school in the United States, practically, you'll have a debate team. And debate teams, um, you know, they serve uh, an interesting purpose. They have kids learn how to research and investigate uh, different topics and then um, make a, a cogent case for their perspective and then argue and hopefully win. But I always ask myself about debates what is the purpose of this, you know, beyond gaining those skills of investigative reporting and, and you know, cogent um, uh, presentation of one's ideas or opinions? What's the greater purpose? Because usually these um, debates are fabricated. They're, they're created either or scenarios. And, and students are usually just assigned one side or the other. And they're just told, you know, argue your case and win it. And to me, that that doesn't serve a very high purpose. Whereas solutionary teams, you take a real life problem. It could be in the school. It could be in the community. It could be a national problem. It could be a global problem. And you have a team of students who are working together to come up with viable and cost-effective solutions to that problem. And then you can have these solutionary teams coming together and presenting their ideas at solutionary congresses. And uh, we actually launched this in Utah last spring, and we're going to uh, spread it this year. And our goal is to have a, a national conference in the U.S., and then it'll be international. And there'll be social entrepreneurs, there'll be investors, there'll be politicians, coming to these solutionary congresses to hear these students' ideas. And the really good ones, you know, those are the ones that people are actually going to invest in. They'll actually get to be implemented. Why not, you know, why not and, and really harness our young people's big hearts and great minds in service to contributing to a better world. I mean, not you can only imagine how much they're going to learn in the process, how much agency they're going to feel that they have, and how empowered they will be to go out into the world when they graduate and actually make a difference. Uh, that's, that's beautiful, because I find for myself that learning from uh, heart space is a much different experience than just learning from an intellectual space. I mean, connecting to the feelings and to that inherent compassion that we all have is has a lasting effect. And on that note, one of the things that I remember so much from all of the workshops that I attended, I think there was there were two probably down in Maine and there was one in Toronto that uh, and every single one of them was just life altering. 
But one of the things that you really focus on is compassion, is connecting people to that compassion. So I'd love to hear how you define compassion, because I know that there are a lot of people who out there who will claim to be compassionate people. However, they tend to have uh, boundaries with their compassion. So they might be compassionate towards dogs. They might be compassionate towards cats. They might be compassionate towards children, but they draw boundaries at farm animals, um, the environment, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I'd love to hear what you what you call how you term compassion and and what you feel what you feel must happen for commun- uh, for humanity to actually connect to that at that core essence. Well, the word simply means feeling with. And so for me, compassion is the capacity to put myself into another's shoes or another's paws and or another's hoofs um, and to feel with. And compassion is an innate emotion that all humans, with the exception of perhaps sociopaths, which comprise you know one to two percent of the population, but barring sociopaths, all of us experience compassion. It is innate. It um, a- and for many people, it is the core human quality that they will identify as being perhaps the most important human quality. In fact, when I was um, writing my book, Most Good least harm, and uh, above all, be kind. I did this informal survey to ask people what they considered the best qualities of being human. And the reason I did this is because the word humane, one of the definitions is having what are considered the best qualities of of being human. And I didn't want to impose on other people, you know, what my list of best qualities, I wanted to find out what other people thought the best qualities were. And it was very informal. You know, I, I um, asked uh, several hundred people. And the most common quality that was named was compassion. But as you said, you know, people experience compassion in different ways and for different um, people and for different species. And, you know, some people have a hard time experiencing compassion for those they perceive as their enemies or those they perceive as their food or those they perceive as pests. And um, that's not surprising. I think all of us, to, to some degree or another, um, have, have, you know, either compassion fatigue or compassion blindness, where we don't see something. So here you and I are communicating right now through our computers. Now, both of us, I know, have compassion for other people. And yet these machines that we are working on, as I mentioned earlier, come with a hefty price tag for other people, for the environment and all the species that all the toxins affect. And so we have compassion, but Having compassion to such a degree that we forego the use of our computers is probably not going to happen because both of us need our computers to actually further compassion in the world and do our work. And so we all make these choices. So what I try to do in my work is not to have anybody feel that they are being targeted um, by me or anyone else for not having enough compassion or compassion in the right ways, but rather to invite people to use what I call the three eyes of inquiry, introspection, and integrity to decide for themselves how they are going to manifest their compassion in the world, how they are going to put their values into practice. So what do I mean by those three eyes? Well, We can have a lot of compassion, but if we don't have information about the effects of our choices, we can't act on it. So inquiry is simply using our minds to seek out information about the effects of our choices. So, for example, you mentioned, you know, somebody might have compassion for dogs, but not for farm animals. So inquiry would invite them to say, okay, how about learning about the effects of your food choices on others? 
And so if somebody is willing to do that, they're going to come up, you know, finding out a lot of information that may not fit with their values of compassion. And once that happens, then I would invite them to introspect the second I, which is to really consider how this new information fits with their value system and what changes, if any, they might want to make so that they are then able to embrace this third eye, which is integrity. Integrity just means that we walk our talk and we live with compassion and we, you know, whatever our values are, assuming that, you know, compassion is a value, that you're simply living according to your values. And as I said, you know, it's not in my value system that I'm causing the kind of harm I'm causing with the uh, electronics I use. And yet I haven't found a great alternative. I haven't found a computer that doesn't have these negative impacts. I have been able to find foods that have uh, that do more good and less harm. And so I choose those foods. So that for me is, you know, a fairly um, simple way of living with integrity is to choose foods that are aligned with my uh, values of, of showing compassion toward other species and toward the earth and, of course, toward people too. So that's a way of looking at how we can make choices that really is an invitation rather than, um, rather than a criticism of people and their choices. It's an invitation to go on a journey of learning and introspecting and living with integrity. And in some sense, in, in terms of what you've been talking about, it's a way of using one's mind and, and making one's, one's efforts to learn congruent with one's heart. And when we do that, then we get to live with greater integrity. And that's a really good reality check, too, because it reminds me that uh, just by being human, we are all impacting the earth in some way whatsoever. You know, I mean, it's, it's important for us to, to live from, you know, that heart's heart place with intention, but knowing that uh, we can minimize our impact, but we can never be perfect. That's, that's actually a very good reminder for me. So thank you for that. You're welcome. So see, I'm always learning from you. (laughs) So now I'm going to switch gears a little bit. I want to talk more about you because you talk about you always have so much hope and you're so optimistic, which is so beautiful, especially in this world today where there is so much despair and where we are potentially teetering on the brink of disaster. And you know, there's just, there is so much hopelessness that I'm, I'm seeing out there. I'm seeing actually a combination. There's this polarity. Some people seem to feel a lot of hope. They feel like there's an elevation in consciousness. Other people are feeling despair and indifference and apathy because of the state of the world. And you mentioned that, you know, there's a dark side as well as the light side. So what I'm wondering is, is do you ever feel that despair and the anger and the frustration over the state of the world today? And if you do, how do you find your way back to that heart space that keeps you living with intention and purpose and compassion? Well, the answer to your first question is absolutely. I definitely have my dark nights of the soul when I, I don't think we're going to pull it off. I think that we're um, potentially going to cause just, you know, really massive destruction. And, um, and, and when I have those moments, I ask myself, would I do anything differently? Now, I have dedicated my life to creating a, a better world through education. And when I say I've dedicated my life, I work as a full-time volunteer and give all my resources, all my honoraria, to the Institute for Humane Education because I believe so firmly in the power of addressing the root solution to all of our challenges, which is education. So uh, when I have those dark nights of the soul and I think, you know, I'm giving my resources away, I'm working all the time um, for no pay, I'm donating 
you know, all this to, to this field. Um, and if I have those moments when I think, is it worth it? I ask, well, okay, do I want to do anything differently? And the answer is always no, because I still, even in those moments, have to act as if it is possible because what else is there? I still have to wake up every morning and look myself in the mirror and ask, how are you going to live your life? One day I'm going to die and I'm going to ask myself, did I do everything I could? And I want to be able to live my life without regrets. So the the despair that I sometimes feel does not impact my actions because I want to lead a life of integrity and meaning and purpose. And the truth is, and this is, you know, if I can um, offer anything, it's this. The truth is that when we lead our lives in service, when we do the work of our hearts and our minds in service to a better world, that brings joy and purpose and meaning to our lives. And nothing is really better than that. So on some level, everything that I just said, it's all in service to my own life as well. So if listeners are thinking, you know, how can my own life be meaningful and valuable and joyful? Just lead your life in service to your highest ideals for a better world and make sure that your passions and your talents are aligned with what you most care about. And if you do that, the rest falls into place. I absolutely agree. Absolutely agree. And, you know, and that's exactly what I'm doing right now. I'm just following my own heart and my own calling. Because for me, just uh, getting the message of hope and compassion is so important out there. But also, you know, with a grain of truth, it's really important for us to realize that we are in dire straits right now. But if we all collectively co-create something better, there is definitely hope. Can I can I tell you the biggest thing that gives me hope? Please. Star Trek. And I've been a Star Trek fan since I was 13 years old. And um, my feeling about Star Trek, which, by the way, is the most popular TV show in history. All right. So it doesn't really matter. All the great shows that are out there, Game of Thrones and whatever, Big Bang Theory and all the Netflix, it doesn't matter. Star Trek's the most popular. To me, the reason why Star Trek gives me hope is because it depicts a future in which we have solved so many of our problems. Our nations are at peace. We're explorers without being conquerors. We're no longer prejudiced. We're no longer myopic and mean-spirited. We're no longer destroying what supports our life. Um, and, And that vision... The fact that we humans created that vision and it's the most popular show in television history means that a lot of us share that vision. And if you can imagine it, there's nothing to stop us from creating it. Absolutely nothing. And that gives me hope. That is amazing. And you know what? I've never been a Trekkie, but I know that you are. And with that, I think I'm going to go dig out some archive. (laughs) But you know, I think a lot of these, um, I remember in high school reading, what was it like Fahrenheit 451? We we read a lot of science fiction books at that time. And they seemed so, um, they seemed, what I remember reading is that there seemed like a lot of possibility with these books. They seemed kind of weird and out there, but at the same time, there seemed like there was some truth some reality, like whoever the author was at that time for whichever book I was reading was connected to something that could potentially actually happen, something that we weren't able to necessarily cognitively uh, uh, connect to at that time. But who knows, maybe Star Trek will be a possibility. And, and, and on that note, you know, one thing that I'm, I'm reading and hearing a lot about is that there seems to be uh, like a consciousness shift that's happening on the planet now. I mean, I know that there was a lot of that 2012 
uh, stuff that was going on December, what was it, December 21st, 2012. There seemed to be a lot of people talking about a consciousness shift. And I'm actually, what I'm noticing in my own life is that there seems to be uh, a split. In some ways, it really does feel like there is a shift in consciousness, an elevated consciousness that's happening. At the same time, there's still status quo that has engulfed the masses. But I'm leaning more on the on the hope of the elevated consciousness because I'm feeling it and I'm seeing it and I'm experiencing it, seeing it more, at least in my own world. And so what I'm wondering is like, based on your your tireless work for uh, for truth and for critical thinking for all these years, do you think that there's truth to this statement? Like, do you think that there actually is? an elevation in consciousness, a shift in consciousness that's happening that may take us towards that Star Trek world? You know, the, that concept, and I hear it a lot too, it, it's not one of those that, um, that I experience or that feels, um, feels like something real. It feels more like a trend in words. It doesn't really feel real. Um, I think human beings are, I, I believe that it is true that human beings are becoming less violent and less discriminatory and less cruel. And there is strong evidence that this is in fact the case. There, Steven Pinker, who's a Harvard cognitive scientist, wrote a book a couple of years ago called The Better Angels of Our Nature. And it's a painstakingly researched 600-page book. And it, um, it makes the case that we are living in less violent and less discriminatory times than ever before in recorded human history. And I think that the evidence is there for that. Would I call that a shift in consciousness as if it's something that's just happening now in, in this particular um, you know, period of time around a certain date? No, that's not how it feels like it works to me. For me, it feels like it works as a, a sort of slow progression of, the, of, of human awareness and understanding and the ability of human beings um, to expand our tribal nature, to embrace each other as all part of the same human tribe and hopefully all part of the same earth tribe. And so it doesn't feel, you know, I hear, I, I hear what you're saying and it always feels a little new agey to me. Um, and it doesn't feel as powerful, um, to sort of jump on that bandwagon as it does to, um, to watch the steady progression, uh, sometimes with major, um, um, slips <laughs> to, to put it mildly, um, but to watch this sort of human progression of, of less violence and less discrimination. And I do have to, um, if you do end up watching Star Trek, I do need to throw in a caveat, which is you need to remember that the original series was filmed in the 1960s. So Star Trek, the early years of Star Trek were quite sexist. They're still sexist. We, we haven't gotten there yet, but you know, you and I can imagine a non-sexist world and we'll get there too. (laughs) It's all connected. Absolutely. (laughs) Um, Okay, I'm going to ask you, I'm just going to throw this question out here, because this is a fun one. What would you say the top two miracles are in your life? Just the top two things that have really, really kind of rocked your world. Um, Well, the first is that I was born. Holy cow. (laughs) I mean, you know, every once in a while, not even every once in a while, I am, you know, stunned repeatedly at the uh, tremendous good fortune in just simply being alive. And then not just being alive, but I, you know, I was born on these shores where I had all sorts of privileges and opportunities for education. And I don't have to worry about having food on my table or a roof over my head. Um, So 
the the miracle of being born and being born at this particular moment in time in in a in a country where i have had freedoms to parents who could give me all of what i needed and so much more is the first miracle and then you know i guess i'd have to say the next miracle might have been um meeting my husband um and everything that's unfolded um uh, because i met him and um you know it's interesting because a number of years ago I realized that the greatest tragedy of my life led me to meeting my husband. Um, my father died when I was only 23 years old. He was 58. And um, he, he was the greatest father anyone could have ever had. I, I absolutely adored him. And his death was just utterly tragic. And I would not have met my husband had my father not been dying because I moved to be closer to my father and moved into an apartment in a building that my husband lived in. And that's how we ended up meeting. So it's a very strange thing to say that meeting my husband was the second miracle because it was only this, it only happened because my father was dying, which was the worst tragedy. So life can be like that sometimes. Very strange um, where, where some of the, the most painful and difficult things in our lives can somehow lead to new opportunities and possibilities. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, that's exactly what's happened to me as well. And what I always say is sometimes uh, the most beautiful gifts come out of the ugliest packages. And that's exactly what happened to me with my mother's death too. And I, uh, I have to say, I'm just going to mention this. I love the journeys that you take us on on Facebook with your husband <laughs> with Edwin and Fred the frame <laughs> so I don't want to keep this hidden with others so perhaps you can explain about Fred the frame because it's awesome oh thanks well um uh my husband found Fred um who uh Fred is a wood old wood frame and he found Fred on a beach on uh, Campobello Island and it was my birthday and um, we had gone up to Campobello and we're just walking along he finds Fred and we decide to just play around with Fred and so we started making things and uh, I made a seagull out of rocks that I found on the beach and a little mandala, and then we saw a bald eagle. So he held Fred up, or I held Fred up, uh, so that the bald eagle was framed in the in the in Fred the frame. And then Edwin took a picture. So we kept Fred the frame. We take him with him. Uh, we take him with us on vacations, and we take pictures through Fred the frame. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I you know. Thanks for bringing up good old Fred. I think that. Um, for me, and, and and I don't know if this is worth going into, but when you talked about um, how do you deal with despair, and um, one of the ways that I deal with despair is by um, being out in the natural world. I, I not only feel like it's a miracle I'm born, but I just cannot believe the miracle and majesty of this extraordinary planet and I am so in love with this planet and all the species who live on it with the exception maybe of cockroaches who kind of weird me out but um even you know live and let lives um but but I find great joy in being connected to the natural world, in seeing the beauty out there, in falling in love over and over and over again with this unbelievable planet. And, you know, Fred's just one little tool of many to fall in love with the planet. Well, that takes care of a few questions I was going to ask, because I was going to ask about when you feel the most connected to, to everything, including yourself. And it sounds like you've already answered that one, unless you feel like you want to expand on that at all. No, it really is when I'm when I'm outdoors in nature. 
for the most part. And also, actually, you know what? I, I um, Every night when I climb into bed at night and my animals jump on the bed with me, I feel like I'm the luckiest person alive. I'm so unbelievably happy. And I, you know, I will often say it's the best time of day. And then in the morning I wake up and they're still there. I'm like, this is the best time of day. And so just um, love, you know, love is, uh, is the way that I stay connected. And whether it's love of other people or love of other species or love of this planet, it's, it's the same emotion. It's love. That's a great segue into my next question. And this is a really important one for me because this is the way I live my life because I think I mentioned to you earlier before we started recording is I live my life by feel. And I, it's, it's a completely different way of living compared to the typical status quo way of living. So this question is, is very special to me. So what does living a heart-centered life mean to you? Well... For me, I don't distinguish in the same way as I think you might between heart and mind. Um, I'm really into my mind. I love uh, learning, thinking, um, critical thinking, debating, um, not debating like a debate team, but, you know, having juicy conversations about with, with people who have very different opinions. I mean, I will get into heated conversations, um, because I love that. I just, I, I am a fairly intellectual sound sort of pretentious, but I'm a, I'm a fairly, um, mind, um, mind using or mind centered person. I also happen to have a big heart, like I'll cry at the drop of a hat. And so for me, these capacities of being human, having these amazing minds, and also this amazing capacity for compassion and love. To me, they're part of the unbelievable package of, of being born human. And I love them both, and I love them as as they are integrated. For me, having my heart and my head connected is where I can do my greatest work and make my greatest contribution. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I I totally agree with that. I I know that without the certainly without the mind, we wouldn't be we wouldn't have the capacity to act. We wouldn't have the capacity to make the decisions and choices that we make. I believe that my this is my personal belief. I believe that when the heart leads the head, that's when we're solutionaries. Um so on this note about the heart and the head, I just have another question here. You you live a life of such pure purpose and intention and passion. I mean that for the very first time I met you it's exuded. And I have to say, I mean, we've known each other a long time and it sounds like that passion is even greater now than it was before, if that's even a possibility. I would say that's true. Yep. So uh, I'm going to, this is going to, this might be a hard one, but if you could single out one single lifestyle choice that you make that keeps you solidly in that space of compassion and intention and passion and purpose, what do you think that choice would be? Boy, I don't know if I can narrow it down to one thing. Okay, uh, let's, let's say three then. Okay, um, and I'm not even sure that these can be considered lifestyle choices. Well, I'll say that for me, um, laughing and being joyful uh, are key ingredients to my passion. And so I do lots of things um, toward that end uh, to, you know, I laugh a lot. And so that's one. Another one I would say is um, I've chosen to be vegan. I've been vegan for how many years? Uh, 24 years. And that is a really core choice that I make, you know, every day, multiple times a day, 
to, um, to you know, live with integrity to my values of causing the least amount of harm and the most amount of good with something very, very basic, you know, what foods I eat. So that's another one. And a third one I would say is ensuring that I get outside as often as possible to remain so passionately in love with this beautiful planet that I will do what I can to protect this planet and all who live here. I think you just read my mind. (laughs) And you know what? And I have to say, laughter is so critical. It's so critical. And you have a wicked sense of humor. Oh, well, thanks. (laughs) All right. Okay. One of my favorite quotes is Gandhi's quote about you must be the change that you wish to see in the world. So what is the change that you wish to see in the world and how do you exemplify that change in your everyday life? Um, I, you know, the change that I'm working on creating through the Institute for Humane Education, through all of our programs, um, is to redefine the purpose of schooling, which I believe provides the root solution to all of our challenges. And I believe that if we provide students with the tools and the knowledge to be solutionaries, that is how we will solve the challenges we face before it's too late. So how do I live my life exemplifying that? I've just dedicated my life to achieving that. And, um, you know, that's what we do at the Institute for Humane Education. And your listeners may want to visit our website, which is humaneeducation.org. And I told you about the solutionary teams and our graduate programs and our online courses and our free downloadable activities. And an initiative that we're working on now, which I'm really excited about, is uh, opening a solutionary school, hopefully in New York City, uh, which will exemplify this kind of education and serve as a model that will be replicable all over. So I think that answers your question. Totally answers my question. And I have one more on that note. If you had a magic wand or, I don't know, some kind of a Star Trek wandy kind of thing, and you could wave it over the planet, what kind of world would you create? Oh, the Star Trek world. That's just so simple. <laughs> I mean, it would be a Star Trek world, though, um, that wasn't sexist. I'll just say that. That's awesome. I can't believe that in the remake movies that they're doing now, that they have Lieutenant Uhura still in a miniskirt. I mean, I just about cried when I saw that. <laughs> Well, maybe maybe with that magic wand, you could create, I don't know, pants or something. Exactly. <laughs> anyway, are you going to be on tour? Is there anything else that you'd like to add about what you're doing in your own world? Because I know that this might be airing after the big event, but you've got a big event coming up with Jane Goodall. I know. We're so excited. It's uh, Saturday, September 21st in New York City. We, um, along with two other humane education organizations, including Roots and Shoots, which is a Jane Goodall Institute program, and Heart in New York, are going to be holding a humane education conference called Educating for a Just, Peaceful, and Sustainable Future. And we actually sold out before the early registration deadline and had to secure a bigger room. And if you had told me that that was going to happen and we were going to have 450 people coming to a humane education conference, I would have said, yeah, mm, I hope so, but I'm not holding my breath. Well, I don't have to hold my breath. It's happening. Jane Goodall is going to be a keynote. Arun Gandhi, Mahatma Gandhi's grandson is going to be a keynote and I'm honored to be a keynote along with them. It's really exciting. And then, you know, the other thing that I'm doing right now that is a new thing that I'm really excited about is my one woman show, which is called My Ongoing Problems with Kindness, Confessions of Mogo Girl. Mogo is short for most good, which is 
the name of one of my books, Most Good, Least Harm. And this show is bringing humane education issues, issues about animals and the environment and human rights issues to the public, but in a more entertaining format than a typical talk or a class. And it has been so much fun to perform this show. And I'm thrilled to bring it to other communities. I performed it a couple times in New York, a couple times in Maine, and also in Boston and and Detroit and Chicago and Washington, D.C., among some other places. And so I'm going to be performing it in Bar Harbor on October 26th. And I would love to bring it to Canada so and to other other places, particularly the Pacific Northwest of the U.S. and Canada. That's I would really like to do a tour in those uh, in that region. So much fun to do, and it's really a great way to introduce people who would never come to a talk or take an online course to these ideas because it's you know they're going to a show for entertainment. And you're entertaining. There's no doubt about it. Well, thank you. <laughs> thank you so much, Zoe. You know, I have to say that you you mentioned one of the biggest miracles is that you're alive, and I agree. And I'm grateful. Oh, I'm grateful for well, you being alive as well. Ditto to so, you, Deb Sarko. <laughs> thank you so much for being here, Zoe. And I'm going to be uh, putting all of your contact information up on the website so that everybody can just come en masse to you. Awesome. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Zoe Weil. As always, I feel inspired, hopeful, and happy. Now, if you want to learn more about Zoe and her work, check out her website at humaneeducation.org. And there, you can learn about becoming a humane educator yourself, and you can check out the online courses and workshops offered through the Institute. You can also purchase her books or invite her to perform her one-woman show, My Ongoing Problems with Kindness. Confessions of a Mogo Girl, and you can bring that into your community. I'll be posting all of this information along with her 2010 TEDx talk, The World Becomes What You Teach, in the show notes on my website at debozarco.com. And remember when you're there to sign up for my list and join the growing community of compassionate paradigm shifters. And when you sign up, you'll get immediate free access to my powerful Path to Purpose guided meditation that is complete with embedded binaural tones. And those tones take you into a deeper state of relaxation and receptivity. And what that means is that you're able to access those deeper, slower brainwave states of theta that help you get into that creative zone and help you to access your purpose. Because the world needs people who live with passion, compassion, and purpose. And that is the end of episode number three. May we continue to open our hearts on our evolutionary journey of awakening to the point where our heads can no longer make sense of it all. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, live with passion, live with purpose, change the world.